0: tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The police department on Hawaii Island is aware of the growing community concerns about a recent rash of violence that some say is caused by a group of teenagers calling themselves score gang. Two parents we talked to filed police reports after they say their children were threatened by gang members on their public school campus. The Conversations Russell Subiono talked with Hawaii Police Department Captain Rio Amon Wilkins earlier this morning.
1: What can you tell us about what law enforcement in Hilo knows about this?
0: We have
2: several documented cases involving students that could possibly be associated with you know, this group who's been identified as a SCORE gang. There's potentially other incidents involving them, but at this point, you know, we've done a pretty good search through our records management system. Only you know, have found four cases involving them. You know there's some similarities to the cases and you know some differences i mean if you want i can kind of go through each of those cases briefly
1: yeah if you could share some of the the justice of, of some of those cases whatever you can share would be appreciated
2: okay the first case was the early part of august 2022 it was reported as an after-school affray across from hilo high school which is a fairly common place near hilo high school on winonia avenue in hilo where I guess you could say a preferred place for students to congregate after school and you know there has been a fair amount of reported fights there involving students and a 15 year old male was arrested and charged for third degree assault Uh, the victim in that case was a 14 year old male the second case Was reported on October, mid October, 2022. It was another similar type incident involving an after school affray. However, this one was across from Waikea High School. This case was a robbery case. 15 year old male and a 14 year old male were the responsibles and the victim was a 15 year old male. Then beginning of this year, January 4th, we had a fairly large fray on Hinaoli Street near the old Gila Hotel. This incident uh, appeared to be involving uh, residents of the old Gila Hotel as well as uh, downtown Gila homeless individuals. In that case, there was reports of at least one firearm being involved. You know, there was a very large police response to that incident. And there were several arrests made, juveniles and adults. We recovered two airsoft rifles that did resemble actual rifles. However, there was no report of any firearms being discharged, and we did not recover any real operable firearms. And then the most recent incident was this month, March 2nd, at Gila Intermediate School, and this was a terror threat case. 14-year-old male was arrested for terroristic threatening, and the victims in that case were Uh, a 13-year-old and a 14-year-old female student from the school. And it's my understanding that that most recent case has been what's really garnered the most attention, especially on social media.
1: Yeah, just the basics of the case that you described sounds in alignment with the story that these parents shared with me yesterday. And it sounds like it's primarily youth. Does HPD have any thoughts as to why this group of kids or this gang is doing this? Do you know if it's part of a social media challenge or are they just kind of trying to emulate things they've seen in the movies or TV or on the internet or is this classic young kids acting out?
2: I think for the most part it is young kids acting out. Obviously there's always groups that stick together in school and you know, and click, if you will. And I think that's you know, kind of what's going on here. We've been in contact with, you know, school administrators here in Hilo, at, uh, primarily at Hilo Intermediate School, following the most recent incident. And for the most part, what we've been told by the school administrators is that these kids, the ones that are, you know, possibly associated with the score gang, are, for the most part, not causing any serious issues within the school. I mean, obviously, there was the one incident on March second. But, you know, for the most part, it's not like these kids are running amok in the schools and causing, you know, major issues. You know, from a law enforcement standpoint, we absolutely take these types of cases and allegations very seriously. School safety is a concern, I think, to everyone, especially people as parents, everyone. But I also think that there's a lot of rumors and hearsay and things that are around on social media which... You know, it's understandable, that's the nature of the world we live in now, with social media. But I think a lot of it is causing more problems than it needs
1: to be. And that's why I thought it was important that we talk to you today to get you know, the law enforcement perspective. The videos that I saw, they were very emotional. These were some very irate people that right. they didn't want to retaliate, but they're also going to protect their kids. If some of those parents were listening right now, what would you say to them about the situation?
2: You know, I'm a parent myself, and, you know, obviously, like you said, everybody wants to protect their children. I think there may be more incidents out there that have not been reported to the police, that they've been reported to the schools. If someone has a child that's been a victim of any type of crime or bullying, it should definitely be reported to the police and the parents need to ensure that it has been reported to the police so that it can be investigated properly. I think it's also important to note that for the most part, everybody in Hawaii, I mean, it's a melting pot, everybody gets along pretty well. That being said, there are certain groups of people that stick together and protect their own. And we're always going to have you know, certain groups you know they will fight against each other and we want to come up with the best way possible to make sure that all these groups can come together and you know live together you know peacefully Regardless of what someone's background is, everybody pretty much wants the same thing, you know, for their children. Right. To know that their children are going to go to school and get a good education and they're going to come home safely every day. We right. are also working with some community partners and leaders and trying to come up with some type of peaceful resolution, you know, not just for this particular incident, but, you know, more just anti-bullying campaigns. I actually had a meeting later on today at our prosecutor's office with some senior community leaders as well and some of the school leaders and just trying to see how we can come up with a solution that will benefit everybody.
1: I know that the community is organizing a rally on Friday as well. Before I get to my question for you about the rally, does Hilo have a history of gang activity? Are there actual gangs that operate in Hilo?
2: We really don't have any first-hand knowledge of serious gangs like that here. It's definitely not a, an issue that we're dealing with on a regular basis. You know, as far as this gang, you know, known as the score I guess believe it's S-A-O-R gang. I mean, it is a group of, of kids, and whether, you know, that's a the name they came up with on their own or whether that's what, you know, they were named by somebody else, I don't think it's like a serious concern. I don't think that, you know, people need to be overly concerned with this particular, you know, gang identification. I think it's more of a, a general thing that, you know, people just need to be aware, obviously, of their surroundings and we need to definitely work with the schools. And if you know if the schools are seeing something beyond what the police are seeing and the parents are seeing something beyond what the police are seeing, then it definitely needs to be reported to us but as far as our system what i mentioned to you earlier we really only have four documented incidents of you know these individuals that we can you know positively say are involving these kids who have been associated with this
1: potential gang you know the problem seems significant enough in the eyes of the community to organize a peaceful rally to combat bullying to end gang violence this friday What are your thoughts about the community coming together like this?
2: You know, I think that it's fine for the community to come together like this. I would just, you know, obviously ask that they remain peaceful. I think it's also important not to, you know, pinpoint an entire racial group of people, which, you know, I have seen some of that going on on social media. I think that's very dangerous. I think it's it's much more beneficial if it's coming from a standpoint more of, you know, anti-bullying, anti-violence for all children, not just, you know, certain children against another racial group. I mean, we all have to live together and remain in this community. You know, nobody's going anywhere. So I think it's a lot more important for us to come up with a peaceful solution to this, as opposed to pointing the finger, you know, at a particular group of people, especially a particular racial group of people.
1: Thank you so much for your time, Captain Wilkins. I really appreciate you sharing your insight and your perspective with us.
2: Absolutely.
0: That was Hawaii County Police Captain Rio Amon Wilkins talking with HBR's Russell SubiONO about complaints about gang violence in Hilo. The uh, Department of Education released a statement that uh, read in part, assaults and threats at schools are taken very seriously and are investigated thoroughly. Schools are not able to discuss case details in order to protect student privacy during investigations, and as efforts are made to resolve such incidents, parents are asked to work closely with administrators and to remain as patient and neutral as possible through the entire process and not to engage in ways that might inflame a situation. And again, there will be a community rally uh, this coming Friday at the Kamehameha Statue in Hilo Bayfront from 2 to 4 p.m. Our reality check today looks at key legislation advancing as we approach a deadline for the first crossover of bills from one chamber to the other. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Blaise Lovell on the line today. Good morning.
3: Hey, good morning, Catherine. We're about halfway through this year's legislative session, and yesterday the House and Senate passed over a couple hundred bills that made it so far this way. Uh, a lot of them had to do with lowering the cost of uh, living in Hawaii. Uh, a lot were had to do with, you know, um, adjusting the state's earned income tax credit for low-income families, uh, giving renters some tax relief. Having new child care tax credits, a lot of this was from Governor Green's uh, big tax relief package that he's trying to roll out this year. The state expects that to cost about 313 million dollars.
0: Yeah, and the the talk about uh, cutting uh, the food, uh, the excise tax on food and medicine. I don't know, uh, didn't make it.
3: It seems like that. Now, House Finance Chair Kao Yamashita, he told us yesterday that's something he still wants to consider. But the bill, you know, never made it out of the Finance Committee. So for, you know, everybody's purposes, it's pretty much dead this year. Uh, one more thing that's sort of um, clouding the uh, revenue picture for Hawaii. Uh, late yesterday, the Council on Revenues lowered our tax collection forecast for the current fiscal year the state's going to have about 328 million dollars less to spend than it initially anticipated uh senate ways and means chair donovan de la cruz he's overseeing the budget for the legislature he's saying that you know not everything is going to make it and yesterday senate president ron kochi also indicated that whether or not a lot of these tax relief measures get support uh, greatly depends on how the tax projection, uh, the tax collections are, are looking, and uh, right now they're not looking too good.
0: Yeah, I mean, we do need that assessment from the Council of Revenues, right? We got to check to see what we've got in our coffers uh, and what the forecast is.
3: Yeah, so we'll, we'll be paying attention to those tax relief bills as they move from the House to the Senate, and you know, and right now it's looking like not all of them may pass. It, you know, if they do. The Senate's gonna to have to balance you know what do we pass what don't we pass if everything gets approved and like I said you know the governor's tax relief package is gonna cost upwards of 300 million dollars a year and it's gonna get more expensive as time goes on if that all gets funded those tax relief measures it means that something else doesn't when
0: right, we did hear a lot of concern about inflation and so yeah lawmakers obviously have that on their radar to, to help with the cost of living and all uh, but what else is still moving
3: Right, so a couple of other things are still moving. Besides tax relief, the Senate, again, passed the bill to legalize recreational marijuana. Uh, Senate Bill 669 would set up a new authority to oversee the licensing and operation of uh, new dispensaries and growing facilities. And it would also allow your private citizens to grow up six cannabis plants at an enclosed location. It caps the amount of um, marijuana you can have at one time at one ounce.
0: And I know, you know, there are folks that that don't give uh, recreational marijuana, you know, much hope for passage, even though it is advancing.
3: Right. And one of those people is House Speaker Scott Psyche uh, last week on one of the Star Advertisers forums. He was saying that he'd rather, you know, study this issue again and really look into uh, regulation. Um, A similar bill passed over to the House in 2021. It died without a hearing.
0: And uh, there were a number of measures uh, that were introduced to protect uh, abortion rights.
3: Yes. Yeah, so one of the big issues heading into this year, as everybody knows, was the Dobbs decision from the U.S. Supreme Court, which overturned a woman's uh, federal, the, a woman's right to an abortion federally. Obviously, that protection is um, in place here in Hawaii. Uh, but this bill, Senate Bill 1, would protect doctors in Hawaii who perform abortions on people from out-of-state. There's states like Texas that pass laws giving citizens the right to sue abortion providers in other states if their are residents, you know, uh, across state lines to have those procedures. So this would, you know, in, ensure that doctors here don't need to worry about um, someone from out-of-state suing them.
0: And then you also mentioned something about jaywalking. <laughs> What's all that about?
3: Sure. <laughs> One bill that sort of flew under the radar would basically, you know, decriminalized jaywalking in Hawaii. It's Senate Bill 926. It says that, you know, if pedestrians can cross the street as long as a reasonable person wouldn't believe that they're in immediate danger of being hit by a car, this sort of contemplates those times when, you know, it's late at night, you're at a crosswalk, and there's no car in sight. But that red hand is preventing you from crossing the street. Uh, if this bill passes, it means you would be able to cross the street.
0: Okay. All right. I'll keep that in mind. Okay. But thanks so much, Blaze. <laughs> thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Blaze Lovell with today's reality check. You can read his stories on the legislative update at civilbeat.org.
4: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Chamber Music Series, presenting Trio Karenin, performing music of Schubert and Korngold, 4 p.m. March 12th at UH's Orvis Auditorium. HonoluluChamberMusicSeries.org. Did you know even U.S. Senators listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me?
5: Here's Montana Senator John Tester. How I got turned on to this program, as a matter of fact, was, uh, was riding the tractor. We don't get a really good NPR signal where I'm at, but on the tractor I get a decent one, and if I'm in a certain direction, I could pick you up. You know, that, drill <laughs> Wait,
6: wait, don't tell me. The thing you can listen to when you can't pick up any other station.
4: Saturday mornings at 11. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with Homa Nights, offering art experiences, live performances, and bites and beverages, with galleries open late on Fridays and Saturdays until 9 p.m. HonoluluMuseum.org.
0: turn our attention now to enforcement in our city parks. The parks department is launching a new survey tied to the newly funded ranger program. It's asking for your input to help shape its scope. What are the issues in your neighborhood park? We talked to uh, the city's uh, manager, Lena Diamond, and park spokesman Nate Sirota about why public input is so important at this stage.
7: So late last year we started what we're calling our park ranger assessment program, where we're taking a look at some of the issues of commercial activity within our city parks and how we can draft a program of park staff that kind of look at compliance, look at enforcement, look at potential collaborations with other agencies to make sure that, you know, our parks are being used properly and that illegal commercial activity is well-regulated and reported to the city. So this survey that we launched today is going to be open for three weeks. It's going to close at the end of business at 4.30 p.m. Hawaii time on Tuesday, March 28th and we hope people can take this opportunity to let us know. It kind of asks three things. One is the general usage of the parks. The other is what kind of illegal commercial activity, what their interactions have been with that, and then what kind of enforcement powers they would like to see with a park ranger program. So I think it's really important to note that this program right now is an assessment program. So we're looking at what options are available with a future for park rangers in city parks so you know we've looked at other well i say we've done a lot of work by lena our manager to look at other programs across the country but even across the state uh, with dll and other organizations to see what they do you know there's there's a wide variety of options available whether it's just people who go out and inform people and work with uh, their local police departments or actually park rangers kind of what we see at the national parks that have you know their own outfits and actually have the ability to cite people on site. So we're you know kind of keeping all of our options open, but we definitely want to hear from the public on what they'd like to see and what their observations are.
0: Lena, jump in here. I mean, you know, share with our listeners, how many park rangers are we talking about?
8: So our budget, or I guess our proposal, is only enough for five of us, so myself and then four other park rangers.
0: What were you able to find out about best practices as you looked at other programs across the country?
8: It really depends on the nature of their parks. Like for us, we have a very different type of park ecosystem compared to other places, because we have like the beach parks and then the regular uh, green space parks. So it's really kind of like a mix all of different types. Like Portland, for example, has park rangers that only do education and they do a lot of partnerships with other organizations like EMS, fire and the police and then other separate organizations in the community that help with other issues like their homelessness, maybe drug issues, vandalism, and things like that. And then there's, like, one place in California where they have a single park ranger for maybe three parks, um, and he he's the sole park ranger of their department or their, their structure and... He has full police powers, so he can write people citations in the park, and he can even go on beyond that and give traffic tickets out in the street. So there's a lot of variety here.
0: And, Nate, so you really just want the input from the public. What would they like to see as far as priorities?
7: Correct. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty simple survey. So it's, it's important to note that this is really an assessment program right now where, you know, the, the four additional park rangers that we're looking to bring on they're not going to be out there already citing people that's something that we're looking at so we want to try and look at our own needs and the needs of the community and craft and make recommendations for a park ranger program in the future so this is really just you know getting our eggs in a row and and figuring out where the need is and what the community is looking for and what options are available to us because they're you know our laws are unique as well, too, right? As specific to the city and county of Honolulu and to the state of Hawaii. So, creating those enforcement powers might require going one route through the legislative process, or creating new penalties or things like that might go through a separate rulemaking process. So, it's kind of looking at all that's available and you know what would be, um, you know, what we're looking to do to strike that balance between recreational use and uh, commercial use of city parks.
0: And Lena, you know, I recall before the pandemic, you know, there were issues, let's say at Alamoana Beach Park, where, you know, you would have sometimes fitness companies that would set up shop uh, and they would use, you know, the trees and the, the park benches as fitness equipment you know and and I know there's just you know liability issues like you know you if you put up a you know a strap around a tree branch that tree branch you know may not hold you and you know how how are you looking at those kinds of things
8: so for those kinds of things it can be a little bit difficult you know when it comes to I guess, like our park rules and things like that. There's only five of us, and we're trying to cover the entire island, primarily starting with the beach part. So a lot of this project is really reliant on the data collection process.
0: Will this be complaint-driven?
8: Not necessarily. We're really trying to focus on the data collection aspect of this project just because, you know, we need a foundation to build on because we don't necessarily have the information to, you know, have this for sure thing like you know we know this is an issue at these parks and so when we have the other park rangers but we're going out based on what kinds of information we we have been seeing in terms of complaints about certain issues like for example you know we may go out a few days in a week to observe parks in some section of the east side you know and then we'll rotate through those as we're gathering that information and then it'll shift over to a different spot on the island so we can do the same process
0: and so how does this work as far as shifts you know will the rangers be working monday through friday or there'll be overlap on the weekend so we're going to try different types of shifts so it's going to kind of rotate
8: out the short answer is it'll be a mix of both Sunday through Friday and then sometimes include the weekend.
0: And so when do you hope to have uh, folks hired on board? At the
8: latest, the end of April, but at this point, you know, we've covered our side of things in terms of the interviews and we've passed the paperwork over to our admin staff and so from there it's kind of just how that process will i guess go
0: through and nate what can you share with our listeners about what they can expect you know will there be a uniform for these rangers you know how will we know who they are
7: we were kind of discussing that a few days ago what we wanted their their uniforms to look like because a lot of what we're trying to get them to figure out too is the feel of the public interactions right and so early on we don't want them to necessarily have a look of an enforcement agency, because they don't have those enforcement powers as of yet, so we wanted it to be more of you know uh, giving them the ability to have those conversations with the public with uh, these commercial activities, the the businesses, um, so they can kind of get a better understanding from everyone's perspective what's going on. So that is yet to be determined, but uh, I think once we once we get an idea of it we'll we'll put that out there so people are aware. Um, that when you see someone in this uniform, they are, you know, working for this assessment program.
8: You know, the communities out there in the park every day, they're the ones that see what we're not seeing or what we might be missing. Um, and so we want to give, give them this opportunity to really, you know, share with us what they're seeing so that we, you know, can fill in some of these gaps and then move forward from there in a sense.
0: Okay. And then, Nate, is it the kind of thing like, you know, in Waikiki, the... You know, maybe the I don't know illegal surf schools that are operating in certain areas, that kind of thing. Either it, in Waikiki or on the North Shore, because you know we get complaints about that.
7: Yeah, that's that's certainly an area that we're going to be looking at surf schools because, as Linda mentioned, the, the beach parks are going to be uh, the first focus of the of that, and yes, yeah, certainly Waikiki because we have concessions down there uh, with our uh, the city concessionaire that runs some of the water programming, water activities, and then there are some illegal activity, illegal businesses that operate down there. So that's absolutely an area we'll look at. And so it's it's really just kind of getting, as Lena mentioned, a, a, a picture of the entire island, though. Mm-hmm. So it's going to take a little bit of time with, with Five Step members to get kind of a, a good snapshot of, you know, the current conditions all around Oahu.
0: That was City Parks spokesman Nate Sirota and Parks Ranger Manager Lena Diamond talking to us about a new survey that just launched. It's asking for public input to help shape the newly funded Park Ranger program, which the city hopes to roll out this summer. Uh, Check out the conversation page of our website later today for links to the survey, which is only open for the next few weeks. You're tuned to the conversation here on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. <laughs> For today's Backyard Quiz, we're asking you about a famous short story by the British author Somerset Maugham. It begins on board a ship traveling from Honolulu Harbor bound for Pungo Pongo in American Samoa. The story was published in 1921. It features two couples. One is a Dr. MacPhail and his wife, and the other, Mr. Davidson, a devout missionary, and his wife, The couples encounter Sadie Thompson, a woman who plays loud music, laughs, and throws parties in her room. The two couples make the assumption that she's a resident of the Honolulu Red Light District, or as the devout Mr. Davidson calls, the plague spot of Honolulu. He decides to take it upon himself to stop Sadie sinning and begins to give her religious instruction. As time passes, the singing and parties stop, and she appears to become more devout and succumbing to his control. The more he visits her, the more disturbed she grows. So do you know the title of this famous short story? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag from HPR.
4: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nereet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as Women in Need on Kauai. NereetHawaii.com.
0: and proximity to wind and solar farms all part of a picture under scrutiny by the Public Utilities Commission here to talk about it is HPR Savannah Harriman Poe. good morning
9: good morning Catherine yes the Public Utilities Commission is taking energy equity to discussion in a new docket they are meeting today and their objective is to bring community members and energy stakeholders together to talk about equity now equity is fairness right but how does it pertain to energy Well, the PUC in this docket is trying to kind of figure out exactly what that means to them. But in particular, they're looking at, do people have access to renewable energy projects? And are the burdens of energy in terms of costs, but also placement of energy infrastructure equally shared across the community? So I attended the first meeting virtually last week. Um, just over 50 folks on Zoom logged off, logged on from across the islands, and there were more people in person at the commission. But I wanted a little bit more detail about why the PUC chose to host this open forum right now. So I reached out to Grace Ralph. she's the chief of policy and research for the PUC, and she's been instrumental in getting this whole thing going. Here's what she said.
10: The commission has been really interested in improving equity in the energy system for a long time now. but. Last year's legislators issued a number of resolutions that asked us more specifically to look at a couple of aspects of energy equity. And so in response to those, we've opened this more formal proceeding and we're aiming to kind of take a look holistically at how we can better do our work at the PUC to ensure that the transition to clean energy and as we're meeting our 100% clean energy goals that the benefits of that transition are equitably distributed across the state and to different communities and residents.
0: I mean that sounds fair. <laughs> yes, absolutely.
9: But I think it's worth noting that the PUC regulates over eighteen hundred entities and energy electricity touches so many aspects of our lives. So I asked Ralph, what are the priorities? And asked her to go just into a little bit more detail about what specifically she's hoping this document will address.
10: Some of the issues that we've highlighted as most top of mind for this proceeding to address are our high energy rates, the high energy burden, which we think of as the percentage of a household's income they spend on their energy costs, lack of access to renewable energy initiatives for folks that may be renters or lower moderate income populations, We know there's a really high need for utility payment assistance and i think that was very much exacerbated by the covid19 pandemic over the past couple of years Mm -hmm. as well as inflation and global situations that led to high energy prices as well i think too just we've noted that historically our energy infrastructure has been cited heavily in certain communities and the legislature in particular asked us to look at whether communities that host energy infrastructure should be, you know, compensated or receive some sort of benefit for hosting that infrastructure as well.
9: So some of those equity measures are already in the works. For instance, there's a community benefits package currently in place for folks near Campbell Industrial Park, which has historically hosted most of our energy infrastructure. And going forward, Wine Electric is actually going to require a community benefits package as part of any developer's bid to create new energy infrastructure. And that topic, the placement of energy projects, was a huge point for people who attended the open forum last week. It's something that we've discussed a lot in, in conversation, Catherine, here on the show. But also the rising cost of electricity for folks is something that people are feeling really poignantly right now. Energy costs just in the last year, since the, the start of this year, January, have crept up and up and up. But those two points highlight this kind of tension. On one hand, we would hope for more renewable energy projects to reduce costs for low-income folks and that those processes and projects would be accessible. But low-income communities are often called upon to host these projects, and sometimes they don't feel like they have a say in the matter. So RELP hopes that this energy docket can get everyone on the same page, or at the very least, show everyone what their options are.
10: I think one of the things that we find challenging in our work is that there are inherently a number of trade-offs to the ways that we achieve our 100% renewable energy goals. And it's really important that communities understand those trade-offs and have a say in sort of what they view as the the right path forward or you know the most viable path forward i think energy literacy is a huge part of it and that's something we're definitely still considering how to address in this docket i think we want to balance both taking our time to ensure that communities are informed and that we've made thoughtful, well-informed decisions, with also taking quick action and moving at a speed that shows we're serious about this, that we want to take action, and that is aligned with the severity of the climate crisis as well.
9: So the PUC will be regrouping after these two first meetings to see how best to move forward um, in terms of the meeting schedule, but they are planning more meetings and particularly meetings on other neighbor islands. And you can always go to their website. They create a specific landing page for this docket where you can provide public comment at any time on any of these issues that impact you or your community.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's certainly very timely because, you know, you can't just plunk these projects down and not give the community a chance to process what is going to be, you know, whether it's a large utility scale solar farm or large windmills. You know, you've got to built in buffers and, and consider the, the needs of the community as well.
9: Absolutely. And while that takes more time, it future-proofs these projects. It makes sure that everyone is on board once these projects go up and service the community.
0: Yeah, lots to weigh. All right. Thanks so much, Savannah. Thank you, Catherine. We've been talking to Savannah Harriman-Pote. You can read her stories on dot org. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, and we now go to this week's Mono Minute, where we hear the calls of a Hawaii seabird. Recordings come to us thanks to Zeno Kento Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart.
5: Uh-oh, also known as Newels or Hawaiian shearwaters, are one of the few seabirds that breed only in the Hawaiian Islands. They have a wingspan of a bit less than three feet and both sexes have black-colored backs with striking white undersides. Uh A'o belong to a foraging guild known as tuna birds, because when fisher people see them diving into the water, that often means there's tuna below. Uh A'o can even use their wings to swim to depths over 150 feet in search of small fish and squid. Uh A'o spend almost their entire lives at sea, first come to shore to breed when they're six or seven years old. They nest in colonies, mostly on the steep, fern-covered slopes of Kauai, with much smaller colonies on most of the other main Hawaiian islands. The low moaning calls you can hear around their colonies at night sounds a bit like their name. They use sharp claws in their feet to dig a deep burrow in which they lay and take care of just a single egg. An old Hawaiian proverb that is said of the human mother of an only child goes, ho'okahi no hua a or the a'o bird lays but a single egg. Males and females take turns incubating the egg and often sit on it for a week or longer before they're relieved by their mate, who has been fattening up at sea for their turn. Uh have been in serious decline over the past few decades, primarily due to predation at the nest by introduced cats and other predators, but also because when fledgling birds leave the nest for the first time at night, they're very attracted to lighting on streets and around buildings. This can lead to what's known as fallout, where the birds become grounded and susceptible again to being eaten by cats and dogs. In response, the Save Our Shearwaters Group, or SOS, has set up stations around Kauai where citizens can bring down birds for rehabilitation. Protecting colonies from predators and reducing outdoor lighting at night during certain fall and winter months are two important ways we can reverse the decline of these important native Hawaiian seabirds. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from UH Hilo Department of Biology.
4: Support for Manu Minute comes from Hawaii Forest and Trail, exploring Hawaii Island with visitors and Kama'aina since 1993. More information at hawaii-forest.com.
0: On The Long View, we consider the emerging block of voters as the generation of baby boomers contracts. Here to talk about it is our contributing editor, Neil Milner, a fellow boomer. <laughs> yeah. No, actually,
6: I make the category after that. But let's, uh, okay. let's talk about something else.
4: <laughs> <All right.
6: laughs> yeah. So let's talk about um, the younger voter, how democratic they've become how more likely they were to vote than they have been in the past, and how much they're going to dominate. What I'm talking about here, since we spend a lot of time now talking about the candidates for the 2024 uh, presidency, too much in my opinion, let's take a look at what the voting situation is going to look like as far as people's preferences. So here's what we know. We know that uh, Gen Z, which is roughly now, say, 9 to 18 or so, plus 17 plus millennials, 18 to 45, are increasingly going to dominate demographically. And by 2028, the younger voters, that you know, people who uh, are the younger voters now, let's say the millennials, are going to be the majority of the electorate. What else we know is that they're increasingly democratic. Um, and they've become increasingly important in recent elections as they vote a little more. They were important in the battleground states. Um, they really played a role in keeping the Republicans from doing nearly as well in 2022. So that you have that. Then you have a very important constant factor, which has shown up for years, and that is party identification is stable. What that means is for the overwhelming majority of people, the way the party you supported when you were younger is the party that you support when you get older. It's stable. You hear all kinds of stuff about people calling themselves independents and all that. And there's a kind of in the woods, into the woods sort of explanation. But it's it's much, it's very stable. So what it sounds like is you're getting a larger increase in a solid core of Democrats, this cuts across all. Um, it cuts across all ethnic groups. Actually, there's a few elderly uh, Hispanics. It's a little different. And remember what that means. What that means is that you now have this very strong core of people who are voting uh, Democratic. And in fact, if you look at what the Republicans have been. Their lack of success in many ways over the last few presidential elections—that even when Trump won, he won by uh, not by a majority. He won he won by the majority of the electoral college. So this and and the issues. Oh, oh, let me give you one, one other factor. But if you look at the at people over forty-five, the majority of them voted Republican in the in the midterms. Um, if you look at people. Under 45, 60 percent, a little over 60 percent, voted Democratic. Sounds like a good, solid Democratic core. Issues are changing. The most important issue for them is diversity, well, inclusion, actually, about it's good to have immigrants and, of course, abortion. What also is happening is that on those kinds of issues, younger people who still vote Republican right now come closer to having the same position as Democratic young voters on, say, abortion than they do the Republican position. In other words, they're more likely to be pro-abortion. So there you have it that if you think the demographic stuff is destiny, then it looks really good for the Democrats, and it doesn't look really good at all for the Republicans um, in in a general sort of way. So... That's one side of the equation, and it's an awfully strong side of the equation. It's bolstered by the fact that Democrat, that young Democratic voters, young voters, tend to look at different sources of information. They're social media oriented. Mm. They don't trust the, the newspapers at all. Fox viewers are old. Um, if you're 65 and white, that's a really important uh, dem- uh, demography, demographic characteristic. Okay, so there you have it. So, is it destiny? It's pretty important, but we always have to remember a few other things. One of which is that we can't predict the future. We can set pretty good probabilities like party identification, but some kind of event could be so powerful that it could change things. We thought maybe COVID did, and COVID did in some ways, it made the country more polarized, but it wasn't an experience that uh, made people change their behavior, their party identification very much. Well,
0: you know, we had a guest in here last week uh, talking about strongmen and some of the reaction to strongmen, you know, with Trump in office, where we saw the Women's March and, uh, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter and just, you know, more pushback. Uh, And then I was at a recent... uh, a rally in Waikiki, you know, uh, uh, about protecting abortion rights, mm-hmm. and yeah, there were a lot of young people out there who were uh, sure.
6: That's that's for, that's for sure, and um, there is a lot of that going around in other parts of the, of the world, actually. But you have to remember this: that here we're talking about elections. You know, when Democrats versus Republicans, when you have to make choices, it's usually it's a binary, it's one or the other. We don't really have more than two parties to speak of. And when you go down that route, a lot of this stuff gets channeled into one party or another in an election. There's a big difference between sentiment, public opinion, let's take, um, uh, millennials who tend to be pro-abortion and tend to vote—I de- mean, tend to vote Democratic. There's a long leap between that kind of sentiment and actual social or political change, right? So that if you want to think about abortion, for example, you may have a very strong pro-abortion movement going on that's been uh, that's been generated, excuse me, even more so enlivened by this. But the fundamental fact is that you have institutions that are not necessarily, um, they're kind of impervious to it. To put it more simply, you got the Supreme Court that made that decision. Public opinion, in the long run, studies have shown it affects the Supreme Court. In the short run, you can have all of this kind of stuff going on and you're not not gonna make that fundamental change. So, there, you always have to remember that it's important to see these demographic changes and to see who's voting for what. But if we didn't, if the relationship between how people, what people want, and what they get were that clear, the world would be much better. In fact, all the research shows what the common person wants is very different from what legislators passed.
10: Well,
0: it'd be kind of interesting to see what the uh, let's say the Republican Party. Uh, chairs do to sure. try and build their base in the younger well, population? Well,
6: they, they go, they've gone through this a number of times. The Republicans right now are actually probably more divided than the Democrats. But here's what happens with the Republican Party after they lose. They, have, they set up some kind of study commission. And the study commission tends generally to say we have to be more inclusive. We have to be, move more to the center, although they don't use the word the center blah, blah, blah. And then that document essentially gets tossed out. It gets tossed out because at the grassroots and in Congress, there is a very strong sentiment not to do that. If you read, if you look at one of these inclusion reports and you look at what Republicans in the grassroots are doing, they're very, very different. And just because I'm saying this kind of stuff about Democrat, democratic destiny, doesn't mean that people are going to change their values and behavior. And you can see it in what Fox News is doing. You can see it in still a strong uh, legacy that the election was stolen. And you can see it in the fact that Republican candidates aren't getting any more moderate. And either, in fact, most Democrats aren't.
0: Okay, well, it's a nice break to take from focusing on the candidates and to talk about the voters. Ah, yes.
6: (laughs) Uh, So I'm willing to say there are a lot of other things going on that you can avoid both for a while. (laughs) Okay,
0: all right. Well, thanks so much, You're welcome. Take care. We've been talking with our contributing editor, Neil Milner, he joins us every other week for the Long View. We'll share links to those articles that uh, Neil has mentioned on the conversation page of our website, HawaiiPublicRadio.org later today. <laughs> Now it's time for your backyard quiz answer we asked you to name the title of a very famous short story written by British author Somerset Maugham in 1921 he was a medical doctor who later became an author he traveled in the South Pacific and Asia for several years before returning to Europe to write his stories his writing brought to many in the West their first understanding of the lives and the people in other parts of the world among them a short story about a missionary Uh, Mr. Davidson, who takes advantage of a prostitute named Sadie Thompson. The story was turned into a movie several times, first starting Gloria Swanson and later Joan Crawford. It was also staged as a play. And while it was published over 100 years ago, its portrayal of class and piety, hypocrisy and truth, is one that still resonates today. It is one of the best-known short works by Somerset Maugham and was titled Rain. And congrats to my old friend Walter Wright from Kahalu, who says that he studied it many years ago. Thank you so much. You got it right today. And that's today's quiz. If you have one you'd like to share, write to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, we have to go now, but up tomorrow, we plan to hear from a Maui photographer who hikes in his backyard during COVID, and he shares his views, Maui to Makai. Want to listen back to something you heard? You can find all of our shows archived online uh, or by searching for The Conversation podcast on Spotify and Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.